From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Today, Rosie Perez. She was a dancer on Soul Train, the choreographer for the sketch comedy show In Living Color. She did the now-famous dance in the opening credit sequence of Do the Right Thing and co-starred opposite Spike Lee. She's now co-starring in the HBO Max series The Flight Attendant. She'll talk about her career and how she managed to become so successful after having been raised as a ward of the state in St. Joseph's Catholic Home for Children in New York, and later in foster care. Also, we'll speak with comedian, writer, director, and actor Stephen Merchant. With Ricky Gervais, he co-created the British comedy The Office. He has a new comedy thriller series called The Outlaws. And Maureen Corrigan will review Hernan Diaz's new novel, Trust. Terry has today's first interview. I'll let her introduce it. My guest is the Emmy and Oscar-nominated actor Rosie Perez. She started her performing career as a dancer. When she was 19, she was dancing at a club with her friends when a talent scout from Soul Train noticed her and invited her to dance on the show. She brought her style of hip-hop dancing to Soul Train at a time before hip-hop had entered the mainstream. She went on to be the choreographer for the Fly Girls, the dancers on the sketch comedy show In Living Color. She choreographed music videos for Bobby Brown, Diana Ross, and LL Cool J. In 1988, when she was 24, Perez went to a nightclub and ended up getting in an argument with Spike Lee. He told her, I've been looking for somebody who can yell at me in exactly that way, and he cast her as his girlfriend and do the right thing. Despite the success of the movie, Rosie Perez couldn't get an agent or a manager to take her seriously as an actress. But she pushed on, something she's done her whole life, and was cast in White Men Can't Jump and Peter Weir's film Fearless, which earned her a Best Supporting Actress nomination. Perez had a rough childhood. She had nine siblings. Her mother was intermittently jailed throughout her childhood and was diagnosed later in life as schizophrenic. When Perez was three years old, she was transferred to a Catholic foster home run by nuns and was considered a ward of the state of New York until age 12. Rosie Perez currently stars in the HBO Max series The Flight Attendant, which is in its second season. Later this month, you can see her in the Apple TV Plus series Now and Then as a police detective. Rosie Perez, welcome to Fresh Air. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. It seems like things are going so well in your career now, like two new series. <laughs> um, like, do you feel it in a great place professionally now? Yes, I do. It's wonderful. It's all about just keep pushing and keep going, as you stated earlier. You know, if you really want something, you just have to keep at it. And, um, you know, there's been highs, there's been lows, there's been mostly highs, thank God. Um, but right now it's it's really high, and I'm very, very happy. So, you know, you have two new series. One of them is The Flight Attendant, and you have another series starting May 20th in which you play a police detective. When you were first getting started in acting, you got a lot of roles, uh, role offers as prostitutes. Does it feel good to be playing the detective and not the prostitute? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, it's very interesting because here's the thing. When you're of color and you get offered a role as a prostitute, you have no backstory. You have not a great storyline. You're just a prostitute. You're just somehow, right? And, but if you look at how when white women get roles of prostitutes, they get nominated, you know, because 
they have a full arc, a full story, and then they're the lead, and it's all about them. If you think about leaving Las Vegas, if you talk about if you think about Pretty Woman, you know, those weren't the prostitute roles that I was being offered. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Not by a long shot. You 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 were you were like a sex worker on the street getting arrested? Yeah, though though yeah. I mean I didn't take those roles. There was one there was one role I took, um, Criminal Justice at HBO and I played a drug addict, but I was the supporting lead, and the whole story circled around me and Forrest Whitaker's characters. And I said yes to it because it was it was a story about a human being. And my agent at the time didn't understand, well, why would you take that and not take this? And I go, why are you in this business? You don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, it was so crazy. It was so crazy to me that they just couldn't comprehend. They couldn't see past the bigotry in the situation. You know, it was just like, oh, my gosh. It was insane. Do you think having um, a kind of New York Puerto Rican accent ever stood in your way of getting roles? 100%. Of course it did. You think about somebody like Billy Crystal. He has a New York accent. Never, never hindered him. You know, there's lots of people who have accents, you know, but when you, once again, are a person of color and you have an accent, especially if you're, you know, Latino, it, it really works against you. And people, you know, they always say, oh, why is everything about race? Because everything's about race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's as simple as that, you know. And I'm not, I am not afraid of playing certain characters, you know. I'm not afraid of playing the good and bad and ugly of my nationality, of my race. I am not. I am opposed to playing the negative stereotypes that are limiting and help to foster that horrible narrative over and over again. That's when I put my foot down. And there's a big, big difference, you know? Let's go back to the very beginning. Um, you spent, you know, your formative years from, was like age three to age 12 in a group foster home and in foster care. Um, I know it's a complicated story, but how did you end up in foster care? Well, I wasn't in foster care initially, and most people don't understand the difference. You are a ward of the state, um, and that means what it, it literally means. And I was um, basically governed by the Catholic Church inside a Catholic home for displaced, unwanted, or orphan children. And it was in a convent in upstate New York in Peekskill. And my mother had given me away when I was a week old. Um, I was a product of an affair. And um, she gave me away to my biological father's sister, my aunt, uh, Dominga Otero. Everybody called her Menguita. I called her Tia. Well, I used to call her mommy. I thought she was my mother. And my mother came back out of nowhere when I was three turning four and just said, I'm taking the baby. And just ripped me out of my aunt's arms. And um, my cousins told me that she felt her knees and went into cardiac arrest. She survived, but she 
went into cardiac arrest. And my mother took me from my aunt's house in Brooklyn, where I was a happy, spoiled child. Um, despite the poverty we were living in, I didn't know we were poor because um, it was a happy home. And she took me directly to the convent in Peekskill and gave me to the nuns. How, how could she do that? Take you from a home in which you were loved, you know, with your aunt and bring you to a group home? It wasn't a group home. It was a Catholic home. It's like an orphanage, if you will. But why would she do that? That's a very good question. That's the question that I've been dealing with all my life, that I had to learn to kind of let go, because I'm not going to get the answers. The only closest thing that comes to mind for for some type of answer is is a result of her mental illness. It just... It just did not make any sense. And the other thing that I could think of that I was telling my father, I said, maybe she was jealous. Maybe she had had some type of yearning for me. You know, I don't know. I really don't know. And no one knows. But she did not want my aunt to have me. Rosie Perez speaking with Terry Gross. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. And Maureen Corrigan will review Hernan Diaz's new book, Trust. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Rosie Perez. Perez is co-starring in the series The Flight Attendant on HBO Max, and in the new series, Now and Then, which premieres May 20th on Apple TV+. After being raised as a ward of the state of New York and in foster care, she's had quite a career. She co-starred with Spike Lee in his film Do the Right Thing, and danced to Public Enemies Fight the Power in the opening credit sequence of the film. She got started performing as a dancer on Soul Train. How old were you and how old was your mother when she was actually diagnosed with, you know, a mental health disorder, schizophrenia? I don't know, but I do remember, I don't know what age I was. I was maybe around 10 or 11, I think, when a social worker, Mrs. Sanchez, um, told me that my mother had mental illness. And I just looked at her. And she says, okay, now you're going to go to the psychiatric doc- Dr. Tisby, who was on staff at the convent, um, and he'll explain it further. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it's just a lot for a kid to take in. You know what I mean? And... Um, what also people don't understand, in the Catholic home, on weekends, you were able to get visits from your relatives or you were able to go home for what they called home visits. And my aunt had petitioned for me always to go home and my mother would deny it a lot of the time. So there, were, most of the time I would go take the train down um uh, back to New York in the subways to Brooklyn with my aunt to back to my house, my aunt's home. And once in a blue moon, I would go to my mother's home. Um, but there were weekends where she would just deny it. And so my aunt would trek all the way upstate to see me. Um, so there wasn't, there was hardly, I wouldn't say every, but there was hardly a weekend where I didn't see her, my aunt. And it was very seldom when I saw my mother because they would say, oh, you can't go home to your 
aunt this weekend because your mother's coming up for a visit. And we would sit there and wait for hours, and most of the time she would never come. And it just, it just, you know, all these things turned me into an introvert, you know, angry little girl. Well, I can't imagine what it's like to not only have your mother reject you, but take you out of a home where you're loved, put you in a, you know, a Catholic home for girls as an orphan, when when you had both a mother and a loving aunt, and your mother would prevent you from seeing the aunt, I can't imagine how that made you feel about your ability to be loved. It was horrible. It was really horrible. And on top of that, my half-brothers and sisters, my mother's other children, were in the home as well. And there was the girls' dormitory and the boys' dormitory, and we were kept very, very separate, except for playtime and eating. And the other girls in the dormitory would say, you have half-sisters, but they say that you're not really their sister. And I was like, what? So it was just so confusing, and my aunt would have to fill me in. And the counselors there, too, there were some wonderful counselors there, I would have to say. Um, There was one very sadistic nun who used to beat the crap out of me on a regular because I had a strong will and a strong spirit. Um, You know, because I would say practically every day, I don't belong here. And it was like, smack, 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 get on your knees, pray to Jesus and for forgiveness. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like a five. <laughs> you know, it's just, and it was just too much. It was just really, really too much. And because of those formative earlier years with my aunt, who always told me I was special, always told me I was loved, I had a different sensibility than the majority of the kids there. And there was only a few that fell into the same tribe as I, and that we were like, we don't belong here. I want to jump ahead to when you were 19. You were studying biochemistry at Los Angeles City College, and you were dancing at a club one night with your girlfriends when a talent scout from Soul Train saw you and asked you to be a dancer on the show. So I want to talk about dancing on Soul Train. What kind of dancing were you doing, and how did that compare to the other dancers on Soul Train? Well, first of all, I showed up in sneakers and tight jeans and they told me, oh, no, you have to get you have to wear something else. You can't wear that. And I said, why? Well, the girls don't wear that. And then I looked at all the other girls and they're in high heels and spandex pants and spandex outfits and stuff like that. I went, oh, gosh, got it. And I went and I got one of my hoochie mama looking dresses (laughs) and uh, (laughs) and some high heels. And I didn't really know how to dance in high heels and I just started shaking my ass and they were loving it and when they would yell cut and we would go to a commercial break I would take off the shoes and they would be playing music to keep the liveliness going and I started doing hip-hop and some of the soul train dancers were like oh my god that's that New York stuff could you teach us I'm like sure you know and we're you know teaching them and stuff and I remember Don Cornelius getting so angry so angry because he hated hip-hop and he says do not do that on my set and I said why <laughs> same little girl with sister Panada. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and he goes, because I said so. And I went, oh, all righty, Mr. King. And I went, Don King. And he didn't like that joke at all. He didn't, he didn't like that joke at all. Um, you know, but uh, I quickly picked up how to dance in high heels. And me and my college buddies, the girls that came with me, we thought it was a hoot. We thought it was a joke. We didn't really understand the magnitude it would have, that millions of people were watching us. So I didn't get it. I really didn't get it. I just thought it was funny. It was silly. We were having a good time. And then the phone rings and my father calls. Why are you dressed like that? Why are you dancing like that? All of my friends are calling. I feel so disrespected. And so I was only on so train for eight months, and I quit after that phone call from my father. Because of that? Because of that phone call? Yeah, I didn't want to hurt him. I didn't. It's a different world in Puerto Rico. You know what I mean? I am not Rosie Perez in Puerto Rico. I'm Rosa Marie, the daughter of Ismael Sorano. That's who I am. You know what I mean? And so for him to say that to me, and my father is not judgmental. My father, my father, God rest his soul, was a very, very kind, funny man. Um, for him to say that was really big. And so I did it for him. I didn't feel pressured by him at all. You know, but I did that for him because I loved him and I respected him. So I didn't want to hurt him. But it was such an opportunity that you were giving up. I didn't see it as an opportunity. I saw it as fun because I thought I was going to be a marine biologist. I thought that this was just a sidetrack, you know, just a fun thing to do, like going to the nightclubs. I didn't see it as that. So you started doing choreography and and then... Um, Spike Lee cast you and Do the Right Thing. That was before, I'm trying to get my chronology straight, that was before um, In Living Color, right? Yes. Right. So let's let's talk about Spike Lee casting you in, in Do the Right Thing. And you have that amazing opening episode in which you're dancing to fight the power. Um, so Spike Lee saw you at a club, and it's not just your dancing that impressed him. I'm not sure he even saw you dance. It was your way of arguing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was my arguing. So you were arguing over a butt contest. Now, I'd never, honestly, con I confess, I hadn't heard of a butt contest before. Does it, is it what it sounds like, where guys sit around judging women's butts? Yes. It was a promotional thing because um, he was promoting school days, and one of the theme songs was doing the butt. And then I climbed on top of a speaker and I was mocking it. I was like, is this what you want? And I was bending over and I was telling the women, don't degrade yourselves. You deserve better. Don't do these. And then security guards came and I went, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so full of crap. <laughs> and then while I was getting down, Spike couldn't stop laughing at me. And then I got really angry. And I said, What's so effing funny? And he laughed again. And I just went off and he couldn't stop laughing. And I was like, who is this little man? You and didn't know who he was? I did not know who he was. He didn't look like Mars Blackman from uh, She's Gotta Have It. He didn't look like that, you know? And um, so I really did not recognize him. But my girlfriend, Marion Wade, who went to the club with me, recognized him. And she kept telling me, shut up. <laughs> That's Spike Lee. I go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's when he goes, you're an actress. I said, no, I'm not an actress. He goes, oh, yes, you are. And, um, you know, he told his business producer, Monty Ross, I believe his name was, to give me a card. Then he asked me to audition for uh, Do the Right Thing, and Robbie Reed, the casting director, called him even before I was leaving uh, the casting session and said, this is your girl. That was a movie that it felt like everybody saw it, and like it was one of those, like, you have to see the movie and you have to have an opinion about it. Is it true that the Obamas saw it on their first date? Yes, it's true. When I met Barack Obama... Um, was at the Hispanic Caucus in D.C. Um, I was getting an award, and they asked me to introduce Barack Obama, Senator then Barack Obama, and John McCain. John McCain did not show up at the last minute. And um, I said, oh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you that John McCain didn't show up. But don't worry, Barack Obama got the memo, and he is here. And everybody went crazy. And then there was a long line. I mean, people rushed to the stage to see then-Senator Barack Obama like if he was Michael Jackson, like if he was Bruce Springsteen, like he was a rock star already. And um, there was this long line to meet him, and I cut the line. (laughs) And I go, hello, Senator. And he goes, Rosie Perez. And I said, you know who I am? And he says, "Uh, yeah. Uh, my wife and I, that was our first date. We saw Do the Right Thing and went, oh my God, you saw me naked? And he <laughs> laughed so hard. And I flushed with embarrassment. <laughs> but you know, okay, so you were embarrassed because he, he saw you naked. You do have that one nude scene where um, it's a very hot day and you're basically saying, it's too hot to make love. And so um, Spike Lee's character puts ice cubes on your naked body and runs them across your body. Did your Did your father see the film? I mean, if he was upset... At you dancing on Soul Train, I can't imagine how he'd feel about Do the Right Thing. He almost had a heart attack, literally. They had to um, rush him to the hospital. And it was Are so you serious? Bad. Yes, I'm serious. You can ask my sister Carmen. This is the God's truth. He invited the entire town of Aguadilla oh, no. in Puerto Rico. <laughs> <laughs> and when the park came up, they said he stood up and grabbed his heart. Like, you know how uh, Sanford and Son, he would say, Elizabeth. <laughs> he oh, he no. grabbed his heart going... My baby, my baby. And he fell down in his chair and they called the ambulance. Very Puerto Rican, very telenovela scene. And um, rushed him to the hospital. And uh, he was okay. And um, I called him and he goes, oh my God. And I said, I'll never do it again. He said, no, no, no. You're a grown up. It's your life. But please, baby, next time, give me a warning, okay? Say you're doing an artistic film. We both started laughing. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> and um, I, said, I said, you got it. And, and then I flew down there to be with him. And, you know, oh, and I thought he would be so ashamed to walk around town with me. On the contrary, he was walking around town with me, holding my hand. And in his other hand, he had an eight by 10 glossy of me. Oh, that's great. Rosie Perez, it's really just been wonderful to talk with you. Um, I'm so grateful to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been an honor and a pleasure. Rosie Perez speaking with Terry Gross. Perez co-stars in The Flight Attendant, which is in its second season on HBO Max, and she co-stars in the new series, Now and Then, which premieres on Apple TV Plus May 20th. 
Hernán Díaz's first novel, In the Distance, was a deliberate resurrection of the once popular genre of the Western and was a finalist for the 2018 Pulitzer Prize. His latest novel is called Trust, and book critic Maureen Corrigan says its story is also grounded in American mythology. Here's her review. Trust by Hernán Díaz is one of those novels that's always pulling a fast one on a reader. Take the opening section. You settle in, become absorbed in the story, and then a hundred pages or so later, boom, the novel lurches into another narrative that upends the truth of everything that came before. When a work of fiction reminds me that it is a work of fiction, simply to show me how gullible I am, well, thanks, I knew that already. But sometimes these metadramatic maneuvers serve a novel's larger themes. Susan Choi's 2019 novel, Trust Exercise, about the misleading powers of art and memory, is one recent instance. Now Diaz's trust is another. That word trust in both their titles is a tip-off that that's exactly what we readers shouldn't do upon entering these slippery fictional worlds. Trust is all about money particularly the flim-flam force of money in the stock market, and its potential, as a character says, to bend and align reality to its own purposes. The opening section is imagined as a novel within a novel, entitled Bonds, a 1937 bestseller about the rise of a Wall Street tycoon named Benjamin Rask. Think of figures like J.P. Morgan and Charles Schwab, men whose DNA was made of strands of ticker tape. We learn that Rask is that rarest of creatures, a wealthy man without appetites. Our narrator tells us Rask is fascinated by only one thing. If asked, Rask would probably have found it hard to explain what drew him to the world of finance. It was the complexity of it, yes, but also the fact that he viewed capital as an antiseptically living thing. There was no need for him to touch a single banknote or engage with the things and people his transactions affected. All he had to do was think, speak, and perhaps write— and the living creature would be set in motion. For the sake of posterity, Rask does eventually marry an equally self-contained woman named Helen. Throughout the Roaring Twenties, Rask accrues wealth, and Helen finds her place as a patron of the arts. Then comes the crash of 1929. Because Rask profits from other speculators' losses, rumors circulate that he rigged the crash, and he and Helen are ostracized. The final chapters of this saga detail Helen's ordeal as a patient at a psychiatric institute in Switzerland. Her mania and her eczema, described as a merciless red-flat monster gnawing on her skin, are reminiscent of the real-life torments of Zelda Fitzgerald. 
The opening section of trust, as I've said, is so sharply realized, it's disorienting to begin the novel's next section, composed of notes on a story that sounds like the one we've just read. But then Diaz lures us readers into once again suspending our disbelief when we reach the captivating third section of his novel, which mostly takes place during the Great Depression. There, a young woman from Brooklyn named Ida Partenza becomes the secretary and ghostwriter for a financial mogul named Andrew Bevel. Bevel's life is the source for that best-selling novel, Bonds, and he's so infuriated by that novel, he's had all copies removed from the New York public library system. Bevel hires Ida to help him write a memoir that will set the record straight. Sure. The fourth and final section of trust is wired with booby traps, blowing the whole artifice up before our wide-open eyes. Trust is an ingeniously constructed historical novel with a postmodern point. Throughout, Diaz makes a connection between the realms of fiction and finance. As Ida's father, an Italian anarchist, says... Money is a fantastic commodity. You can't eat or wear money, but it represents all the food and clothes in the world. This is why it's a fiction. Stocks, shares, bonds. Do you think any of these things those bandits buy and sell represent any real concrete value? No, that's what all these criminals trade in, fictions. Literary fiction, too, is a fantastic commodity in which our best writers, criminals of the imagination, steal our attention and our very desires. Diaz, whose last novel reworked the myths of masculine individualism in the American West, makes an artistic fortune in trust. And we readers make out like bandits, too. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Trust by Hernan Diaz. Coming up, we hear from comedian, writer, director, and actor Stephen Merchant. He co-created the British comedy series The Office with Ricky Gervais. Now he has a new series, a comedy thriller, called The Outlaws. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Stephen Merchant is best known for co-creating with Ricky Gervais the incredibly influential British comedy The Office. Merchant has a new show on Amazon Prime called The Outlaws about a group of misfits in Bristol, England, who have to complete court-ordered community service. He found inspiration for his new show from his parents, who supervised people sentenced to community service for more minor criminal offenses. He also set the show in his hometown of Bristol, England. Merchant plays a hapless, recently divorced lawyer caught by police in his car with a sex worker. Among the other outlaws is a small-time criminal, played by the always great Christopher Walken. Merchant co-created the show with Elgin James, and it's been picked up for a second season. Along with The Office, Stephen Merchant co-created with Ricky Gervais the show Extras and had his own HBO series, Hello Ladies. He can also be seen playing a mutant superhero in the movie Logan and a Gestapo agent in Jojo Rabbit. But let's start with a scene from the new show. 
Here, the six outlaws have shown up for their first day of community service and are meeting their supervisor, Diane, played by Jessica Gunning. The second voice you'll hear is Stephen Merchants. Some people think that community payback is an easy option, a soft touch. Newsflash, it ain't. You will repay your debt to society by working the number of hours mandated by the court. My name is Diane Pemberley, I'm your supervisor, and I could be a good guy or a mean bastard. Your choice. Good guy, please. You don't choose. You said it was our choice. It was a figure of speech. It wasn't entirely clear. Are you a troublemaker? No, no. Definitely, definitely not. When I call your name, say here. John Halloran. Here. Shouldn't be. Frank Sheldon. What's the agenda, Brenda? Christian Taylor. Yo. Okay, what are you people not getting? Just say, here. Myrna O'Kiki. Here in body, not in spirit. I don't even know what that means. Gregory Dillard? Yeah, that's me. Just say here. Yeah, here, yeah, here. Rani Rakowski? Yeah. Thank you. So that's a scene from the new show, The Outlaws, co-created by my guest, Stephen Merchant. Stephen Merchant, welcome to Fresh Air. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. So, like I said, the the show is in part in, inspired by your parents. So they supervised uh, community service? They supervised community service uh, offenders, as they used to refer to them, um, as you say, in my hometown of Bristol. And um, even as a sort of teenager, I always thought uh, it was an interesting world because my mother would tell me about the sorts of people that, that come through the door. And they were always such a varied bunch. I remember she told me about an old guy who was caught stealing cabbages and other vegetables from people's garden allotments. And she realised that he was coming back constantly and that he sort of just liked the social aspect and was sort of getting himself arrested to then get community service to then come back each year. And I mean, why he didn't join, you know, a sort of, I don't know, an amateur dramatic society or something. But um, And then there was a guy I went to school with uh, who, <laughs> who was the world's laziest thief. He once got caught breaking into a house to steal a TV and the, and the homeowners came back and they said, Dave, what are you doing? And he went, I'm not Dave. And they went, yeah, you are. You live next door. And he was breaking into his own neighbor's house. I mean, he didn't even go a block over. And so my mother would tell me about these people. And I just thought, what an interesting bunch, you know, of people that would never normally associate or, or encounter each other in any other walk of life. And, um, and for some reason, that parked itself in my head and has been there uh, ever since until until we made the show. So was that your parents' main job or did they volunteer for that? Or My father um, began as a plumber and went through various jobs, um, but, but yeah, sort of settled into the community service world sort of later in life, as did my mother, who'd got a sort of job and, and had sort of brought him in. It was a bit of nepotism, I think. She'd sort of got him a job there. And uh, that was what they did really until they retired. Yeah. Um, and so it sort of was, you know, they were very tangentially involved with law and order. And I've always wanted to do a, a show that sort of got a thrillery aspect, a crime aspect. And it seemed like an interesting sort of backdoor way into a, into a crime story. Are your parents still both alive? They're both still alive, long since retired. Um, my mother proudly says that that character you played there, Diane, played by Jessica Gunning, who was very much a kind of butt of jokes in the show. My mother proudly says, oh, it's based on me. It's based yeah, well, on that, me. Well, that was my question. <laughs> it seemed like it was not necessarily the most flattering uh, 
portrayal of someone doing the job your parents had. Well, it's not my mother at all. It's just, it is the job that she used to do. But of course, it's a lot more fun to make the character, you know, a sort of would-be authoritarian who's got no real power, um, but thinks they have. It's a much funnier way to do it. My mother, I think, was just, was was much more, um, didn't have that kind of ego, just got, got on with the job. So do you have a bone to pick with middle managers? I sort of sense a trend through some of your writing. <laughs> Do I have a no? I don't have a I don't have a bone to pick with middle managers specifically, but I'm endlessly fascinated by kind of people whose ego is corrupted, if you like, by a little bit of power, and that's endlessly interesting to me. I don't know why ego is is constantly fascinating, and 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 I think so much of ego is born out of insecurity, and I'm always interested in what are the insecurities that people have that sort of turns them into monsters. Well, your your character Greg is is a bit of a sad sack. He's he's a nice guy, but socially awkward and uh, terrible at his job as a lawyer. Why is that the character you wrote for yourself? Like, what what do you like about playing that kind of role? Well, I regret that because I feel like I've typecast myself again as a sort of awkward loser, which I've played many times before. I could have given myself a, you know, as I am one of the creators, I could have given myself a sort of yeah, James Bond. You could have get the romantic lead or debonair <laughs> guy in a tuxedo. But um, I always wanted that character in there. I was fascinated by the idea. In fact, I sort of know someone who's a little like this who sort of woke up at middle age and found themselves to be a lawyer and thought, how did I get here? I never wanted to be a lawyer. You know, I wanted to be in a band or something. And I love the idea of someone who's drifted into law. You think it doesn't seem like a job you can drift into. But but he'll, by his own admission, is someone who did a lot of his research, you know, through Wikipedia. And um, and that seemed interesting to me, you know, so, someone who on the surface has a, a respectable job, but is just clinging on by their fingernails and and uh, doesn't really know what they're doing and has sort of sweet-talked their way through it. And, and that character was always in the script. And, and then if you've got me on set anyway, why am I going to cast someone to play that character? I may as well do it myself. It's very much in my wheelhouse. And so I end up putting on another bad suit and, and playing it. But, but you're right that it is, it's a lot of fun to play and it's a lot of fun to play someone who's kind of socially awkward and who, you know, is, is um, drawn into a crime world and is sort of the nervous you know, the nervous character doesn't really want to be there. One of my big early comedy influences was Bob Hope. And I always loved that idea of the character who sort of has to, to sort of, you know, the coward in a, in a dangerous situation is endlessly amusing to me. Well, among yourself, you have a lot of other great people in the cast, including Christopher Walken. And I, I read that he was your first choice for this role. Why did you want him in particular? We always have the idea of a character who feels a bit like a, a sort of man who fell to earth. He seems exotic, a little bit glamorous. And I think certainly uh, for a show set in the UK, the idea of a of a of an American, even just one American being in that world seems quite glamorous. And it being Christopher Walken, even more so. And but the idea being that on the surface he seems mysterious and 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 sort of exotic and then when you sort of peel beneath the surface he's just another sort of petty criminal and small person if you like and the idea of sort of playing with that and the expectations that someone like Walken brings to the audience uh, and sort of undermining it or 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 starting to peel it away uh seemed very interesting and and so he also is able to do you know he can be funny but he can also be scary but he can be sweet and he can be funny. And, you know, Christopher's got a lot of sort of, you know, things in his armory. And so there's a kind of, there's so many elements that you can play with when you're playing with someone who's sort of iconic in that way. Well, the show is part comedy, part thriller. Um, And I was wondering when you were writing it, 
Uh, was it at all a challenge to sort of find the right balance of humor? The idea of mixing humor and drama and thriller seems perfectly acceptable to me. I, I, I feel like my life, you know, it's had its dark moments and its tragic moments and it's had, you know, humorous moments within the same breath, you know, and simple things. Like I remember going to my grandmother's funeral and, you know, it was a very somber day and yet I'm in the uh, hearse on the way to the graveyard and I can hear the the the, the, the the reverend and the driver discussing uh, something through the glass. And, and the driver says, uh, do you uh, drive, reverend? And the, and the reverend says, no, I had to choose between drinking and driving. I chose drinking. And they started laughing. And I just thought, well, of course, because it's another day at the office for them. But for us, it was a very sad and somber day. And that juxtaposition, I suppose, of, of sort of tragedy and humour feels like it's been shot through. I, I feels that feels to me sort of ha my interpretation of the world, and and so to me that that those things sitting side by side seem co completely normal. Whereas I think for other people it, they can seem jarring or or sort of uh, incongruous. So obviously there was an American version of The Office that was also in wildly popular, starring Steve Carell as Michael Scott, Paper Company in Scranton. Um, and there's a lot of similarities between the two shows, particularly like in the early episodes of the American version, but they definitely have a different tone to them. How would you compare them? Well, I take pride in the fact that I was something of a historian of comedy and TV and I'd studied it at university. And one of the things I'd noticed when they tried to adapt British shows to America was sometimes the original British people came and tried to do it themselves. And often they didn't work because much as we grow up with American TV and culture, we don't really, know, we haven't lived here. We, it's not in our bones being American. And it was important to us, and I sort of was very kind of um, badgered, Ricky, about this idea that we needed an American uh, to do it, and also who would understand and could get the sensibility of our show, but translate it effectively to America. And my concern on the initial series was that it was too close to our version, and that it it should kind of spread its wings more and and be its own thing. And I think between the first and second seasons, Steve Carell had his hit movie, uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin, and I think the network wanted to sort of soften the Michael Scott character slightly and make him slightly more kind of lovable in the way that Steve was in that movie. And I think that uh, Greg very wisely sort of agreed with that, and they, and they sort of started to take it away sort of from the slightly bleaker, more existential version of the British, uh, the British version, and 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 move into something um, just a little bit more uh, user friendly. Is that right? And and so still kind of with some sharp edges, and still with some satire, and still with some some sort of dark comic moments, but just you know open up the world, open up the other characters, and just bring a little bit more sunshine into this gray office. Yeah, I, that that sounds right to me. It feels like the British version is much more sort of cringe inducing and awkward and. Even the David Brent character is, is more repugnant than the Michael Scott. I, I, I'm just wondering if you think that British audiences have different expectations than American audiences in terms of comedy, if you're, in your experience? Well, I think what we have grown up with in the UK is a series of hit comedies about quite unpleasant men. Right back to uh, a comedian called Tony Hancock in the 1960s, who at that time was the biggest comedy star in the UK. And he was on screen, played a sort of failing actor who was quite petty and, you know, quite selfish. And he would clear the streets famously. When his show was on the streets, the pubs, everything would be empty. People were watching Tony Hancock. But he's quite a malevolent character. And he's 
And then that was sort of followed in the 70s by Basil Fawlty, the John Cleese character, who again is a sort of petty little Englander uh, hotelier. And I think we were sort of in a tradition of that. And I think the British audience is very used to sort of laughing at quite sort of small, petty men. And whether it's a sort of exorcism for us or something, I don't know. And I think I'm not sure that tradition is quite the same in the US. I think maybe you appreciate winners more than we do. You know, we, we quite like laughing at losers. Um, so maybe that's something to do with it. Uh, I don't know. But um, but like you say, certainly I think they, 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 they softened some of the edges of Michael Scott, but I think in a very effective way. You said that you gravitate towards uh, socially awkward comedy in part because you were an awkward teenager. And I think that has something to do with just how tall you are. You're six feet, seven inches. Is that right? That's right. How old were you when you started to outgrow your peers? It seems like I I always was. I can't really remember. Probably, you know, in my early teens, my memory is that I've always been taller than everybody else. And as you say, that made me quite self-conscious. And, you know, that dream that you wish you could go back and talk to your younger self with the knowledge you have now. And the knowledge I have now is people want to be tall. People dream of being tall. And for some reason, I didn't realize that. And no one ever bloody well told me. So I was very, I felt very awkward because I was taller than everybody else. And I should have led into that like a superpower. Um, And instead, it did make me quite self-conscious. And I think you know, someone once said to me in an interview, do you think you went into comedy to control when people laugh at you? And I don't know if that's true. It may be true. Um, certainly, I think there was a feeling that if people are going to point and laugh at you anyway, they may as well pay you to do it. It was part of that. Well, you know, you said you felt awkward at, at that age, but I, I bet you you probably were physically awkward. I mean, your body changed so rapidly a lot of people are clumsy, like in their teenage years. Yeah. You don't really know how to even control your body at that point, especially if it's grown so tall so quickly. Well, I think it's also that you, just the simple things like not being able to buy clothes very easily, you know? And so so many of the sort of conventions of youth, you know, going out with your friends and clothes shopping. And it's like, it was just, just was kind of cut off to me because unless they were all going to come to the the big and tall store, <laughs> yeah. you know, there were, I wasn't going to find clothes that fit. And so you, you can't sort of, you can't create a style. You can't create a look for yourself. You can't choose to be, you know, um, uh, I don't know, like a rocker, you know, or whatever, because you just can't find the clothes to fit. So you end up wearing whatever fits. And it's sort of, and so you never quite walk around feeling like you're owning yourself. You know, you feel like you're sort of making do a little bit. And, um, and it's funny, the little things like that, which, yeah, which, which dictate sort of how your, your self-confidence, I suppose. Yeah, I'm, I'm not super tall myself, but I've, I've noticed that people really feel compelled to talk to tall people just about like how tall they are. Like people will go to, up to strangers and, and ask them their height. Uh, that's probably happened to you. People probably asked if you play basketball. But I mean, what do you think that compulsion is, that desire to to – to talk to tall people. I think it's not just about do you play basketball and what's the weather like up there, which I get a lot of. It's also making jokes. Um, they, people can just meet you. And, you know, I remember being in a bar not so long ago, ordered a drink, and the person I just met said, oh, that's a tall order. And everyone laughed. And I just thought, 
But you'd never make a joke like that about a very small person. No, well, that's a, it's a terrible joke. Well, it is, but it's funny because I think what it is—I I mean, funny in the sense that you know, it's 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 amusing looking at it from the outside because I think people think tall is a victory that somehow you've—it's an achievement. As I said, because people want to be tall, I think they think that you. Uh, uh, somehow accomplish something, and therefore, why would you be self-conscious about it? Why would you be offended if they brought it up? It's it's a success. Um, it's something you can be proud of, and therefore they can comment on it. Um, whereas, as you say, for me, it's just I've heard all the comments before. I've got no new take on them. It's not a conversation starter. Do I play basketball? Has a very binary answer: yes or no. And it's no. There's nowhere to go with that conversation. Um, and so, you know, it's odd that people feel, you know, it, it, they can comment on it, uh, you know, and, and it's interesting in a, in, a, in a climate in comedy in which there's sensitivities to every subject matter, being tall is one that people can still openly joke about. Stephen Merchant, thanks so much for being on Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. Stephen Merchant's new show is called The Outlaws, and it's streaming on Amazon Prime. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Brigger. <laughs>